Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. My name is Shelby. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 39, verses 21 through 23, and chapter 41, verses 9 through 16, and 37 through 41. At the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Chapter 41. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it I've, I have heard it said, said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be, you, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Nathan, and I'm one of the pastors here at New King. And I'm so glad that you have chosen to join us this morning uh, here as we get uh, what seems like an early start to mud season uh, in Vermont. And I'm sure some true Vermonter will come up to me between services and say, Oh, but it's coming. Uh, so, I get it. Um, so, this is one of my favorite stories in uh, really the whole Bible. And I was trying to figure out why. And uh, as a grandpa millennial, Amanda's a good bit younger than me. And so, sometimes I have these experiences from my uh, Southern evangelical upbringing. And I'm like, is that, is that like, just do other people experience this, or is this like unique to my upbringing? And so I was telling Amanda, I have this really vivid memory of watching this movie, this animated cartoon about Joseph, 
and particularly this section of Joseph, where like the cows come out of the Nile and then like the stalks grow up. I'm like, do you have that same memory? And she's like, yes, yes, I do. And I, can't, I have no other recollection about that movie, what happened in that movie, if it was a whole movie about the whole story of Joseph or it was just about this. Uh, but ever since that time in my childhood, whenever that was, uh, I have loved this story. Uh, and all week long, I have like been playing that clip of, my, of that movie in my head, like it was some song that gets stuck, and I have no idea what the rest of the movie even looks like. But uh, So we're going to jump into, that was just me rambling for no reason. Uh, so we're going to jump into uh, the story. There's a, a good bit of narrative to cover today uh, as we get into this further progression of Joseph's uh, life, and as particularly as we look in this section uh, where he goes from the pit of prison uh, to the palace of Pharaoh. So when we last saw Joseph, he was standing in Potiphar's yard uh, in nothing but his underwear, having just fled uh, the lustful grip of Mrs. Potiphar. And Potiphar arrives home, and he hears from his wife what she claims Joseph has done to her. And Potiphar is furious, and he throws Joseph into prison. And this is just a completely free tidbit. It doesn't have a lot to do with what uh, I'm going to talk about today, but it's the prevailing belief of many people uh, that in the way the text is written, that uh, Potiphar's fury is not at Joseph, it's at his wife, because it's, it's potential that she has a history of creating these stories. Uh, and Potiphar would have been in the right lawfully to have Joseph executed. Uh, but he doesn't. He throws him into prison. And so when you look at uh, Potiphar being called the captain of the guard earlier in the story, uh, and then 40, it talks about the cupbearer and the baker going into the prison of the captain of the guard. A lot of people think that uh, Potiphar doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to kill Joseph, so he just throws him in his own prison uh, that he has in his house so he can keep an eye on him. Uh, And I just think that's an interesting uh, uh, tidbit of the story and kind of what Potiphar thinks about Joseph. So at the end of chapter 39, I had uh, Shelby go back and read that. It's really the theme of Joseph's life. We see that from chapter 37 through the end of Genesis. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. The Lord was with him and the Lord made everything he did successful. So while Joseph is in prison, we see here in chapter 4 that Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker offend Pharaoh in some way. We're not told what that is, but we can uh, deduce by the positions that they held. They held Pharaoh's life in his hands, right? So the cupbearer makes sure that no one's poisoning uh, his cup, and the chief baker, uh, which could be uh, translated maybe as more the, the guy who was in charge of all, all things, the chef, uh, they, they both have access. Uh, if someone wants to poison Pharaoh, they got to go through these guys. And so they end up in prison, and we don't know why, But we can deduce that maybe Pharaoh thought that they were planning uh, his or plotting his demise. And so after they're thrown into prison, the captain of the guard assigns Joseph to take care of these two men. And we're told that some time passes until this night that they both have dreams. Now, I think it's important to understand what dreams meant in ancient Egypt. Ancient Egyptians believed that dreams put them in contact with another world. There were professional dream interpreters with their dream books that would unlock the secrets of people's dreams. 
And dreams in pairs really meant something. So the fact that the cupbearer and the baker are closely tied together in their jobs with Pharaoh, they would have woken up and discovered that each other had a dream and immediately thought, whatever's happening is going to come true because we both had a dream on the same night. And so the following morning, Joseph comes to them, and immediately he sees that they are distraught. So he asks them, why are you sad today? We had dreams, they said, but there is no one to interpret to them. And Joseph says to them, don't interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And so immediately we see a few things about Joseph. First, Joseph is surrounded by Egyptian culture with its nearly unending amount of gods. And yet, Joseph is unswayed by the culture. He doesn't seek to contextualize too much his questions or his answers. He has a deep belief in Yahweh, and he knows that God is with him. He knows that Yahweh is the one true God, despite what the Egyptians around him says. And he knows that all the dream books in the Egyptian empire cannot plumb the depths of God. The only source of interpretation for dreams is Yahweh, and Joseph is not afraid to let it be known. Second, Joseph extends hospitality to the cupbearer and to the baker. Now, it's true that he has been assigned to take care of them, but we can assume that in that assignment, uh, there was no intention to provide biblical counseling for them. So he sees their unique needs on this morning after these dreams, and he knows they're distraught. So he doesn't just bring them their breakfast and move on with his day. He stops and he asks them, why are you sad today? He sees an opportunity not to just invest in their physical well-being, but their spiritual well-being as well. Third, he, he boldly points them to God. Now, it's safe to say that this isn't their first meeting. We're told that they've been in prison for some time together. And even though these guys are prisoners, they're formerly high-ranking officials. Surely they still had connections. Surely they could go to the warden of the prison and have Joseph dealt with for making them think about God or talk about God. But instead, they listen to him. They trust him. And I think that we can assume that this isn't the first time that Joseph has brought God into their conversations. They see that he has a regular habit of pointing out God to them, that he regularly talks to them about him. And so as we move along here in the story, the chief cupbearer begins by telling Joseph his dream uh, in verse 9. He says, In my dream there was a vine in front of me, On the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is the interpretation, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were a cupbearer. And then he says this in in verse 14. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. I think this is fascinating. We're not exactly told how Joseph is given the interpretation for the dream. It seems that he spoke in faith and wisdom, and God gave him the words to say as it was happening. And so the cupbearer was to be restored. And Joseph knows that God has spoken, and when God speaks, it's as good as done. So he tells the cupbearer in faith, when all goes well, 
remember me. Use your power and your position to get Pharaoh to get me out of here. I'm not supposed to be here in this prison. All along, Joseph has put his trust in God. And the part that I think is the most fascinating is that he trusts that God will use the ordinary means of this man to get him out. Maybe he had prayed for a miracle before. He knew the stories of his father Jacob and his grandfather Isaac and his great-grandfather Abraham. Maybe he prayed that the angel of the Lord would show up like he had showed up before and that he would walk him right out of prison. But on this day, he looks at this soon-to-be-restored high official in Pharaoh's court and says, remember me and save me. And why could he do this? How did he have the guts to look at this guy and, and ask for something so big? Well, I think it's because he had lived faithfully before the cupbearer's eyes. The cupbearer had a front row seat to his righteousness and innocence. And when the opportunity came, Joseph took it, believing and knowing that God was with him and God was working out his life. And so now the baker is feeling really good about the conversation that Joseph has just had with the cupbearer. So he decides that he's willing to tell uh, Joseph this dream that he's had. He, he feels safe now. So he says, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head, and the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Verse 18, this is the interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. So that probably wasn't what the baker was expecting uh, to hear. So verse 20 continues with the story. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. All that Joseph said would happen came true. God God does indeed interpret dreams. And once again, Joseph felt it. God was definitely with him. Surely God was making him successful. And now, in just a short time, he would open his eyes one morning, and there would be Pharaoh having come to rescue him from the pit. Except hours turned into days, and days turned into weeks, which turned into months, until two years passed by. And that thing that Joseph had hoped for didn't come for two whole years. Several of you sitting here are new to the faith You're excited about following God. Things are moving quickly in your life. If that's you, I want you to take a minute to look around the room. Some of us have been walking with the Lord for years, for decades. Some of us have been walking with the Lord longer than you've been alive. And for those of us who have spent years following the Lord, we can attest with our brother Joseph that a life that follows God is a life that learns to wait. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 40. This is a meditation on the glories of God that focuses on the coming Messiah. And in Isaiah 40, verse 25, he says, To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. 
He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youth may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Joseph, lift up your head in the pit. The cupbearer to Pharaoh may have forgotten you, but the Lord your God has not. Brothers and sisters, are you faint? Are you powerless? Are you weary? Have the sufferings of sanctification gotten you down? The Lord Jesus will give you strength. Are you laid out and immobile? He will lift you up so that you will walk and not faint. Are you walking step by step, downtrodden? He will cause you to run without tiring. Are you running with all of your might? He will lift your feet clean off the air, uh, clean off the ground and cause you to soar on wings like eagles. The Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Down every single mile you will be tempted to quit, to not keep going, but the one who never faints or grows weary will give you strength. Christian, cling to God. He sees you, he hears you, he's with you. The message of the story of Joseph isn't the prosperity gospel. It's not the message to just wait a little longer and you too will be the vice regent of Egypt. No, the story of Joseph is one that calls us to trust that God sees me. Let's move on to chapter 41. So two years passed by and Joseph on a regular evening lays down to sleep. By this time, he stopped even thinking about the cupbearer. Really, what's the point? And so it's just a normal night down in the pit. But down the road in the palace, Pharaoh's having a very different kind of night. A night of dreams that leave him tossing and turning until morning. In the first dream, he's standing by the Nile when seven big old fat cows come out of the Nile and they start grazing among the reeds. But then seven sickly thin cows uh, with their ribs sticking out, come out, and uh, they gobble up these first seven cows. And then the second, seven heads of grain plump and good uh, sprout on a stalk. But then seven scorched and thin heads sprout up and swallow the plump heads of grain. By the morning, Pharaoh is so troubled that he summons all the magicians and all the wise men, and they bring their books of dreams in, but no one can interpret the dream. They're at a loss. Pharaoh is left longing, consumed with wanting to know what it is that he's being told. But the cupbearer, as he's coming into the room, bringing Pharaoh his morning smoothie or whatever it was, hears the discussion, and suddenly that thing which he forgot, he suddenly remembers. And so he tells Pharaoh about Joseph and his ability to accurately interpret dreams. And while we, we may be prone to think uh, bad or poorly about this dear cupbearer, and maybe some of that is deserved. He risks prison again by suggesting Joseph be summoned. But so confident is he in this righteous Hebrew that he risks his own life to suggest that Pharaoh summon this 30-year-old slave out of the pit 
from Potiphar's house. But Pharaoh is desperate. So we read in verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. And so they go and get Joseph, and he looks like a Hebrew prisoner. So they take him out, and they clean him up. They make him look a little Egyptian, uh, and they uh, kind of parade him in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I hear that you can interpret dreams. And what does Joseph immediately say? No, not me, Pharaoh. God will interpret the dream. The fascinating thing is in the Hebrew, I don't speak Hebrew. I was reading this from somebody else's thoughts, but is that that's just one word. He's just boldly like yells one word at him that means no. So what takes us like five words, he's just like, nope, it's God. Uh, and so once again, we see Joseph point to God standing here in Pharaoh's palace, who Pharaoh himself is believed to be an Egyptian god. He's surrounded by all the mission, all the magicians and all the wise men of Egypt. And in his It's not these Egyptian gods who have eyes and cannot see, our ears and can't hear, our mouths and cannot speak, who dreams belong to. No, it's Yahweh, the Mighty One. And is God not towering above all, though he is not mentioned? Is this God of all gods not the one who has lifted Joseph from the pit to the palace? Is it not God who has orchestrated every single second of this story so that this Hebrew kid hated by his brothers, is mere moments away from being exalted to second in command over Egypt. Which, by the way, probably wouldn't have happened if the cupbearer had remembered him two years ago. Is it not God who, through the mouth of Joseph, is not about to proclaim that seven abundant years are coming, followed by seven years of famine? And so... Pharaoh recounts the dream, seven big cows, seven skinny cows, seven plump grains, seven scorched grains. No one here, he said, can interpret the dream. Joseph was direct with Pharaoh. O God of Egypt, he says, the one true God will interpret your dreams. And Pharaoh told him everything with more imagery than we had gotten in the previous telling of the dream. He is with all the irony in the situation and power within him, helpless and in need, a finite God, if there ever was one. Verse 25 says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The seven thin cows are seven years, and the seven scorched heads are seven years of famine. It is just as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will take place, and all the abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows it, for the famine will be severe. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and he will carry it out soon. And without any hesitation at all, Joseph interprets the dreams through God's leading and once again makes God the center of the conversation. He has shown in just a few sentences that Pharaoh is no God at all, that all the wise men of Egypt together equal very little wisdom, that Yahweh alone holds their very existence and future in his hands. So now Joseph says, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. 
Let them gather all the excess food during the good years that are coming. Under Pharaoh's authority, store the grain in the cities so that they, so they may preserve it as food. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. This plan is honestly pretty brilliant. Everyone in the room is thinking it. So Joseph displays sound leadership and administration skills that had been honed in Potiphar's house and in prison. And all this done in humility. Joseph wants out of prison for sure, but there is no indication that here Joseph is contriving an elaborate plan to fix the impending situation. He simply is relaying God's message to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh responds with what is common throughout Scripture, a comment that means more than he himself even understands. He says to his gathered servants, Can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? And then to Joseph, he says, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I, as king, will be greater than you. See, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. And the hand of God continued to direct Joseph's life. What Joseph doesn't realize is that it continued to direct the lives of his father Jacob and his brothers too. What looked like an exaltation in order to save Egypt would be an exaltation to save the whole world. Most importantly, his own family. I'm going to take the opportunity to be really honest with you this morning. So the last few weeks have been heavy. There are things going on in my life and many of the lives around me that have just felt heavy, sometimes too heavy to bear. And when I sat down to begin sermon preparation this last week, I just really honestly wasn't sure that I could do it. And the Lord, through his kindness, over and over again, lifted up my head and reminded me of his grace time after time. And to be clear, nothing circumstantially has changed. All the heavy things still exist. And so I tried diligently as I was preparing throughout the week to walk through the text, to pray and to study and to take notes of what I thought the essential applications were to myself and to you and what would be helpful. And honestly, I thought it was a pretty good list. And as I was giving myself a pat on the back earlier in the week, getting ready to finish the sermon I was writing I just felt like the Lord was saying, do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When I consider what it means to not lose heart, I think of Joseph here in Egypt. I think Joseph can teach us a few things about not losing heart. There are three of them that we'll cover. Number one, do not lose heart in your fight against sin. Number two, do not lose heart in pointing others to Jesus. And number three, do not lose heart in the purposes of God. I'll repeat them again, and then we'll look at them closely. Number one, do not lose heart in your fight against sin. 
Number two, do not lose heart in pointing others to Jesus. And number three, do not lose heart in the purposes of God. First, do not lose heart in your fight against sin. The Bible is quite honest in its dealings with its characters it chronicles in both the Old Testament and the New Testaments. Even a loose reading of the Bible will reveal that it's not quiet on the sins of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Just consider the previous 40 chapters that we have covered in the book of Genesis. There's a lot of sin. All the major players have grievous sins, and the Bible does not sugarcoat them. But then we come to the story of Joseph here at the end of Genesis. More chapters are dedicated to the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis than even the life of Abraham, who we would probably consider more important. But the fascinating thing about Joseph is that in all of these chapters, there is no mention of his sin. And so are we to assume that he is sinless? Of course not. We know he isn't because Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Joseph included. And though Joseph is a type of Christ, he is not the Christ, and so he sinned. We know it. So why is there no mention of his sin? I think, and many of the people who have, are smarter than me and written books about this, think that, by and large, Joseph was a righteous man. Unlike his father or his grandfather or even his great-grandfather, there was no major fall in Joseph's life. It would seem that being sold into slavery did not drive him away from God, but rather to God. It would seem that the trappings of Egypt didn't delight him, but rather repulsed him and, and drew him further into God. Joseph understood that to love God was to follow God's commands and flee from sin. Ben did an excellent job last week preaching about Joseph fleeing from the temptation of sin with Potiphar's wife. So I just want to touch on one aspect that's true to this particular story in Joseph's life. Despite being in prison, despite being sold into slavery, Joseph understood Romans 2.4 long before it was written. It says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Joseph knew that God had been unbelievably kind to him, and in response he fled, sometimes quite literally, from temptation. Brothers and sisters, imitate your brother Joseph. Flee from temptation and sin. Do not lose heart in your struggle against sin. The Lord is kind. He has restraint in his anger toward us. He is patient in his dealings with us. Far too often we think about sins as these things that the Lord is keeping back from us, withholding from us, like he just doesn't get it, or he just doesn't like us, or he just doesn't understand we think it doesn't matter if I look at that woman. I'm, I'm only looking. It, it won't affect me. We think it doesn't matter if I share this juicy piece of gossip. I'm only informing my friend, and really, at the end of the day, it's just a good story. We think it doesn't matter if I change my story. It's only a small lie. It doesn't matter. We think it's okay if my temper flies. I was just trying to prove a point. And on and on and on. But I think it's clear in Joseph's life that it's his righteousness that saves him time and time again from the grips of prison and the pit and Egypt. It's what blessed him. 
That even finding himself on the pit and on multiple occasions, his relentless pursuit of God and flight from sin sustained him day after day. Joseph had every opportunity to throw in the towel, to turn his back on God, and yet he didn't. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart in your struggle against sin. Imitate Joseph. When temptation rears its ugly head, pick up your feet and run, even if you find yourself in the yard standing in your underwear. Jesus is worth it. Hear the words of John in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Don't let me paint a picture that Joseph never sinned. Of course he did. In your struggle against sin, there will be days that you fell. There will be days that I fell already today. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You may be sitting here today, you've never given your life to the Lord. The Bible says that because of your sins, you are separated from God, that uh, you don't have a relationship with him, that his wrath is on you. But Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins through his death on the cross. And give your life to the Lord. Turn away from your sins and follow Jesus. When I get done, there'll be some people in the back that would love to talk to you about that. Second, do not lose heart in pointing others to Jesus. One of the things that sticks out to me in this story is that Joseph never seems to miss an opportunity to redirect people to God. When the cupbearer and the baker say there is no one to interpret their dreams, what does Joseph say? Those belong to God. When Joseph is in Pharaoh's court, surrounded by magicians and wise men, all who think Pharaoh is a god, over and over, Joseph speaks of God, declaring that God is the one who gives and interprets dreams. God is the one who holds the future. God is the one who is saving the world by revealing this famine is coming. There could be no more hostile environment. And what do they all do? They listen to him. Just like you, or just like Joseph, you and I live in a really hostile environment to the Lord. The lostness here in Chittenden County and Vermont as a whole can be overwhelming at times. It can be isolating. It can feel like too big of a mountain to climb. And I'm sure many of us can share stories of times that we were made to feel inferior or stupid or crazy for following God. The lostness pervades every area of life, school, work, our neighborhoods, some of us even the houses that we live in. And yet none of us have the audience that Joseph did. Let us be encouraged by Joseph's boldness in the court of Pharaoh. This man thought he was God. And yet Joseph boldly proclaimed the one true God to him. There will certainly be times the world will scoff at us. There may be real consequences to following the Lord, but let us collectively and boldly point others to Jesus every opportunity that we get. The enemy will try to convince you that uh, you'll only be met with hostility, but consider the cupbearer and the baker. They were desperate and downtrodden. They had seen how Joseph lived his life. They knew that he believed in and clung to this God, and they desperately needed to hear from him. I would venture to say that there's more desperation in the people around you than you're giving credit. They're looking at your life, how you live, 
if you really believe what you say that you do, and they desperately want to hear from you. Several months ago, a lady showed up at the gym that Ben and I go to, and she was only going to be here for a few months, uh, and we quickly realized that she was Mormon. And so we kind of backed off. We were like, well, she's only going to be here a few months. She's Mormon. We'll just let her do her thing. We'll do our thing. And a few weeks went by, and she struck up a conversation with us uh, one day. She had done this a lot about church, uh, which she, you know, she had done this before. And so on this day, though, she looked at both of us, and she said, why haven't y'all invited me to church? Aren't you pastors? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Talk about wanting to be in a pit. And so here's the story. She is seeking God. And she was desperate for an invitation to church because her husband had said, you can go, but not until you get an invitation. And y'all, after she begged us for an invitation, which we gave her, she was here the very next Sunday. Be like Joseph. Don't be like your sorry pastors. (laughs) Assume that people need to hear about They're desperate for the Lord. Do not lose heart in pointing others to Jesus. He is worth it, and they are worth it. This environment is hard, but you will not regret pointing others to Jesus. Finally, do not lose heart in the purposes of God. I listened to a clip from Paul David Tripp this week, and he said this. No one says, I've had three of the most easy years of my life, And I learned so much, and I've grown so much. Hardship in the hands of the Redeemer is a workshop of his grace. God does incredible things, not just through us, but for us when we're facing hardships. Listen to what he said again. Hardship in the hands of the Redeemer is a workshop of his grace. God does incredible things, not just through us, but for us when we're facing hardships. Our sinful hearts are prone to only want the good times, to crave blessings, to drive out any chance of anything bad or hard ever happening. I think Tripp couldn't be more right. Hardships in the hands of the Redeemer is a workshop of his grace. Amanda and I will have lived in Vermont 18 months on Friday, and we've been through some of the hardest things in our lives in those 18 months. But I stand here before you today as a testimony to the truthfulness that hardships are indeed, in the hands of the Redeemer, truly a workshop of his grace. I'm so thankful for the ways God has shown his grace to me in the last 18 months, the relationships that we built, the spiritual growth we have seen, the ways he's moving in and through new King. The beauty he gives in a freshly fallen snow are the mind-blowingly beautiful colors in the fall. And I could go on and on about the grace that we've seen. God is working through your hardships to lavish grace upon grace onto your head. Joseph found himself in the pit multiple times. The 11 years between that day when his brothers attacked him and threw him in a pit and sold him to some Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt to this day in Pharaoh's palace were filled with ups and downs. But all along, 
God was working, forming Joseph into the man who would save the world, lavishing grace upon grace unto him. And I would venture to say, if we can invite Joseph here today and ask him if it was worth it, he'd say yes. Not because he became the vice regent of Egypt, but because this very day he is beholding face to face the glories of God. An eternal weight of glory was being produced inside of him, and day after day after day, he is currently living it out. Brothers and sisters, God is working in your life to conform you into the image of his Son. He is, as Paul says, producing in you an eternal weight of glory, whatever the hardship is, whatever the trials of sanctification, his purposes will go forth. The story of Joseph confirms this over and over again. The pit is worth it, whatever the pit is in your life, because when you get lifted out, you will look and act more like Jesus. You will be lavish with grace upon grace until the day when Jesus comes and gets you and he makes everything new. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for our brother Joseph, for the ways in which it was evident you were working in his life, even though it must have seemed like to him so often that you weren't. Father, we identify with him that life is hard. Some of us feel like we are in pits that we will never get out of. Father, we are trusting that you are building in our lives an eternal weight of glory. We long for that day when we will see you face to face. And we will look back and we will declare every single second was worth it. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Father, we pray that you would give us the boldness of Joseph, that we would point those around us to God time after time after time. God, open our eyes and our hearts to the people that live around us who are desperate for God, who are desperate to hear the saving message of the gospel. Father, open our mouths. Let the gospel come forth in every opportunity. We pray that you would save this place. Father, we trust you see us, that you hear us, that you are with us. It's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.